and welcome back to The Data Mind. I'm your host, Kaylee Garbazeski, analyst turned advisor. I'm super excited today to be welcoming back doctor in residence Ian Alberts, who spoke with us last time about COVID and looking at it through a scientific lens. This is The Data Mind. Welcome back, Ian. Well, thank you for having me back. So Ian, as I mentioned, is a doctor in residence. He's currently a doctor of nuclear medicine after having done a number of years in the British Royal Navy uh, doing tours on nuclear submarines. So nuclear submarines being different than nuclear medicine, but ironically still the same name. Um, before that, he has his grounding in physics, so he's been trained in, in that aptitude as well, which we're going to reference a number of times. And he's currently located in Switzerland, so he also has a global perspective, uh, being currently located in Switzerland, but being born and bred in the United Kingdom. So thank you so much for joining us, Ian. We are really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing we wanted to do was answer one specific reader question coming off the back of that first episode, which is around testing. So that question was, is it true that increasing testing explains the case increase in the USA? Yes. Well, this is a very topical question. Uh, I think the easiest way to visualize it is this graph I saw on, on a website called Our World in Data, which... I would, as an aside, um, so strongly recommend people read because uh, they give some really thoughtful analyses of the data and its limits um, and fact check some of the claims that are made in the media. Um, but nevertheless, they show this graph um, where on the x-axis they show the number of daily new confirmed cases. So it's the number of cases every day. And then on the y-axis you've got the daily number of tests performed. And, you know, one example is Canada, increased the number of cases has fallen. So you see the, and then in the background, you see these gray lines and it shows the number of tests that are returned as positive or negative. You know, in Canada, where the number of cases is, is reducing, but the number of tests is increasing, then obviously the number of positive tests is falling. In the US, you see the opposite picture the curve moves sharply to the right. And it does that in around the end of May, beginning of June, because despite the number of increased tests, the number of cases has outpaced the number of tests. Mm. So when you look at it in a slightly more complicated picture, you see that the, the, the underlying prevalence is almost certainly increasing in the US. Thank you for that question. And thank you for, for helping us understand that, Ian. Thank so you. let's dive into the, uh, to the meat of, of the discussion today around the lockdowns. We could see quickly that COVID was going to be a very big issue, but we needed to understand how big of an issue that was going to be relative to other areas. So now that we know a little, with a little bit more certainty how COVID is behaving, um, we can have a little bit of a better handle of what the relative risk uh, it may present, right? So we wanted to start there and ask you, Ian, if you could help describe that for us. Well, that's a huge question because risk is, is, is actually a very complicated topic. Mm. It encompasses all different aspects, statistics, the medicine, um, population, economics, and the psychology of risk, mm. which is not to be underestimated. And, you know, risk is individual. Um, and it's very difficult to take 
sort of masses of data and apply that to an individual person. You know, we call that personalized medicine. It's actually very difficult to do. Hmm. So for, I think the first thing is, it's always good to start with definitions. What, it, what do you mean by relative risk? Because one person might think, well, relative risk, well, what is my risk relative to another person? Mm-hmm. Sure, that's fair. Which is, which is an important question, but statistically, relative risk is the probability in the exposed divided by the probability in the unexposed. So the question is, what's your risk of dying with COVID and what's your risk of dying if you don't have COVID? And that's your relative risk. That's not your absolute risk because, you know, if, if, if you social distance, if you isolate, if there's a vaccine developed, if the thing just dies out, I don't know, then you might never catch the virus. So you've got to take your, the, all those other things into play you know, I can't tell you what your individual risk of dying of COVID is this year. Mm-hmm. And then relative risk and absolute risks do different things. And often the confusion occurs, you know, there's sort of stereotypical bad medical journalism, you know, eating a mm-hmm. banana doubles your risk of cancer or eating the burnt bits on your toast increases your risk of this or that. If, if you buy three lottery tickets, you've tripled your relative risk of, of winning the lottery. Mm. Tripled, you know, it's huge. <laughs> but, 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 but three times a small number is still a very small number. It's still right. Right. <laughs> and as a very smart person once told me, you know, lotteries are taxes on people that can't do math. Right. And, you, you know, you've, you've got to take your, your absolute risk also into a, an account. You know, people want to put a number on it. You know, the, the, the infection fatality rate has been put now by the by the cdc at at 0.26 percent based on the seroprevalence studies which show that actually a large number of people have got the the, catch the virus and and don't come to medical attention and that's a factor of 10 lower than the initial estimates which are about 3.4 percent now what you can't do is times that 0.26 percent by the population of the united states Mm -hmm. because that, that doesn't give you a very good picture of how many people will die because it depends on what the population structure is. You've got to use a transform with a, pop, with a proper function that describes the population curve, which mm-hmm. can explain some of the differences between countries. So, for example, Italy had a particularly bad time of it, but they've also got one of the oldest populations in Europe. Mm. Why? Because the number of young people relative to the number of old people is lower because the birth rate, um, I think is 0.8 now, it's, it's less than one. So they've got a rapidly aging population, which mm. means that because the infection fatality rate is 0.6, but that's over the average. Mm. This is much higher in a 95 year old than it is in a five year old. Right. So there's a lot more nuance in the data that that 0.26% doesn't tell you. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, you know, even if you just say back of the envelope calculation, 0.26% times by the population of the United States and say 80% of the population are susceptible. And you see that this susceptible portion of the population is very important in your prognostics. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that last week. We still don't know what it is. But even if you be generous and you say 80%, then that puts the maximum fatality around 216,000, which is a lot, you know, which means you have to do something about this. And, you know, I wouldn't want to argue that this isn't something to take seriously. Right. But you've got to put that into the context that 2.8 million people die a year in the United States. 
So, you know, it's not a cataclysm. It's still way below cancer and heart disease, which kill about half a million people each. So can we just pause here for a second? Because I'd just like to rerun through those metrics that you outlined, because I think that two things happened in in your answer here, which are helpful from from the perspective of trying to cultivate data-minded thinking, right? So the first is we said, what's what's the relative risk of COVID? And immediately your response was, what's the definition of relative risk, right? Like, is Mm -hmm. this relative risk of of having the disease versus not, of ever contracting the disease, of contracting the disease in this population, in this age bracket, right? So there's a a definitional sort of phase that was your, your gut reaction, which I think is very important that everyone apply immediately whenever they're confronted with a question, right? you know, a data-oriented question. And then, you know, we talked about the, the sort of the key drivers, right, which you know, having been in the medical community and having looked at this data for, for quite some time. Um, but as we prefaced actually in the earlier episode, you're not actually an epidemiologist, so we, we do want to make sure that we caveat all of these notes with just saying that you're an observer as much as the rest of us are. You just happen to be <laughs> extremely intelligent and uh, and in the medical community, which is which is fantastic. So you, you understood the drivers to be, you know, the infection fatality rate, which just for those of you who missed last uh, month's episode, is is your is the your chance of dying if you become infected, and that's different from the case fatality rate because there's a significant portion of people who are infected who are not identified as cases because if you don't get tested or if you're asymptomatic, we'll never know, right? So 0.2% if you've ever contracted the disease that it would that it would end up in a fatal result. And to Ian's point, there's a spectrum there of risk. It's not 0.26% for every single individual. Then you talked about susceptibility, which is another driver that we mentioned before, which is how many, you know, there's a certain portion of the population in any with any disease that will will or will not be susceptible to a disease. So we gave the example last month of HIV being close to 100% susceptibility, I believe. Is that right, Ian? Yes. So, you know, it's, it's all, there's very rare cases where people have some sort of CD4 um, mutation that, that for some reason they they the virus can't enter their cells. But it, it's essentially 100%. But even then, you know, if you if you if you live in a monastery and you don't have a blood transfusion and you don't inject drugs, mm-hmm. um, you know your chances are probably very low. Right. Still not right. zero, but they're very low. Whereas there are other people whose lifestyles, a social group, or whatever, puts them at very high risk. So you know it, it is more com- it is complicated. Yeah, but it, it but so the point with the susceptibility though is actually this is not a known number we have no sense still of how much of the population is at risk of getting COVID so that I just wanted to highlight that. I I think it's worth saying you know from what the epidemiologists tell us and there's no reason to assume why not that it must be very high because Mm -hmm. it's a novel coronavirus Mm -hmm. and the likelihood that we would have some prior immunity to it must be very low. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't base my country's response to this on some hypothetical, well, you know, we've all had colds in the past. There, right. might, be some, right. there right. might be some level of immunity that's sort of as a residuum in the population. I think that would be a fairly, think that would be a fairly cavalier thing to do. Um, sure. I think you have, to, you have to assume that it's high until, until there's evidence to the contrary. Exactly, exactly. So is it possible at this point to say who is most at risk? Um, yes. I mean, in January, I don't think we could have 
Um, you know, I've seen a very good analysis, and we can link to that from from a, a, a very famous statistician in the UK who's called Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. Wow. Um, he's also written some good books on statistics for the layperson in the past, so he's a good person to sort of get to know. And and he talked about you know how much of your normal risk does COVID represent, mm -hmm. and and if you link to that curve, you'll see that it has its nadir, so the bottom inflection point around age 10, and both COVID and background. Mm -hmm. So actually, there's no, there's, there's no group of people in our society who are, who are more coddled and protected than 10-year-olds. <laughs> but, but, but after that, it rises, and it, it rises linearly. Um, both your background risk of dying and COVID, and, and, the, and it follows almost perfectly one-to-one -one the curve, mm. which, you know, puts some context. So for example, you know, a 9.3% risk of death in an 80-year-old sounds fairly horrifying, and it is. Mm. You know, we really don't want this virus getting into nursing homes and hospitals. But your annual risk of dying in the UK at that age is about one in 10 in a normal year. Sorry, so just, so the 9.3% is the, is your, infection fatality rate at age at the 80 cohort 80 based on Spiegelhalter's analysis of UK data okay okay mm -hmm. that that will be different in other countries mm -hmm. with different medical systems and different population factors that come into play it's very difficult to apply that to the US or to Australia or to someone that lives in South Africa sure uh, while it probably is true that a large number of people that have died, unfortunately, passed away of, of COVID this year, statistically speaking, would have passed away, um, you know, in the next 12 months. Um, and the overlap certainly isn't 100%. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's very difficult to uncover what that overlap is. Mm. So certainly, I mean, the year's not finished yet. And there's right. all sorts of reasons why we need to be very careful about how we think about what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And that is very country specific because it could be that more vulnerable people in countries that have had high death rates um, have passed away, which means that the remaining population are more resistant, for want of a better word. Whereas countries, Austria springs as, a, as an example, where the mortality actually was lower than it would have been expected in a, in a, um, average year because they locked down so early and did it so well, which means mm -hmm. still a large population that are vulnerable, which mm -hmm. means that they might find themselves in a more difficult position come winter than say New York. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not here to say one approach is better than the other and just say, you, you know, we need to be careful how we look at these numbers. And certainly Spiegelhalter uh, makes the point that risk of death normally is spread out over a year. Whereas with COVID, it was squashed into the space of a couple of weeks. Exactly. exactly. And this is, the, this is the reason why, you know, I still think it probably was worth locking down because if, if you squash all your year's deaths into a couple of weeks, then you get to the point like in, in, in Italy where you've got to send army trucks in to, and, and do funerals for 10, 15 people at the same yeah. time because yeah. you haven't got the capacity to, to deal with that number of people. Mm. And that's not even to speak of the hospitals. 
Um, so I don't want to misrepresent that because that has been picked up by some people on the political right or people who are against lockdowns to say, well, you know, it's a risk that we can just ignore. Right. And I don't think that's true. Okay, so, right, exactly. So it's not to say, even though 9% versus effectively 10%, there, we can't we can't say that those the nine percent of people that have perished from COVID in that age bracket would have necessarily been the one in ten that would have occurred this year anyway. So we still need to be very cautious because it's a very high number, and that number again does vary across geographies and so forth. So we can't even say that blanketly. But as a uh, the people you know, who are in the federal governments, and in our case, uh, in the states, sometimes in the state governments, who are looking at what to try to do to mitigate this current wave and, and potentially upcoming waves and later in this year, you know, they will be trying to understand things like that, right? Like things like, okay, so for when we're looking at schools, like what is the sort of relative risk for that age bracket versus the relative risk of the of the older age brackets? Do we have a little bit more information on, on, those, on those differentials? Yeah, I mean, so if you go back to this data that, that Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter presents, and some other studies, you know, the risk seems to, to follow your age very carefully um, or, or very closely. Um, so younger people, the, the risk seems very, very low. You know, I would put that at around one in 50,000, which, you know, you know, these numbers are very abstract. It's very difficult for people uh, to sort of picture what one in 50,000 looks like. Right. It's right, just absolutely. not small. There's a lot of children that live in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, in nuclear medicine, we, you know, we inject people with nuclear materials and there is a small risk of cancer. It's often overestimated by people um, but you know radiation in very large doses is bad and in very small doses probably still has a small risk and if you say well your risk of um, this particular procedure I don't know as a one in a thousand risk associated with it you know, oh well you know that sounds very high I'm not so sure about that mm. but what, what often can be useful is to describe that risk in terms of other everyday activities mm. So, for example, your risk of, of drowning mm. is one in a thousand. Ooh. Wow. Uh, your risk of dying in a motor vehicle accident is one in a hundred. Um, so when you start talking about risks associated with a procedure that are less dangerous than the car journey to the hospital, then you start to relativize it a little bit. Mm. Um, and I tell people very seriously, when they ask, be careful about driving to the hospital. You don't mm. know the way. You'll be preoccupied with your phone because you don't want to miss your turn off or uh, you're worried about being late. You know, your, your, your risk of, of, of being in a car is probably higher mm. on the way to the hospital than it would be under normal circumstances anyway. So I don't mm. mean that to be glib. You right. know, it's, it's very serious. Now, you know, one in 50,000 risk of, of, of um, you know, infection fatality risk um, for a zero to nine year old is about your lifetime risk in the US of dying in a cataclysmic storm. Oh, wow, oh, interesting. Um, which is small. Mm. Um, now compare that to the emotionally charged reports of child deaths mm. due to COVID in the media. Now, mm. there might be someone listening who has had a child who's mm. passed away. I, I, 
don't want to deliver the false impression that I, I don't consider that relevant. Of course it is. Mm. But, you know, if you take your children for a walk in the fields, you know, they could get bitten by a tick and get Lyme disease. Mm. And th this is very different to regular fruit, where actually the, the mortality rate for children is higher, mm. um, which is worth remembering because 50% of children who were offered the flu vaccine last year in the UK didn't take it up. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, right. It's actually bad, bad data about risk can cause lives. I think that that's worth worth mentioning because it highlights the fact that, you know, we'd like, we'd like, I think many of us would like to be data driven, but it's very, very easy, especially when it comes to protecting our, the lives of our family members, of course, um, to, to kind of overlook some of the information and, and, and stay strictly sort of emotional about it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, there was a, uh, a publication by Professor Ioannidis, who's sort of very known to, to doctors for being sort of a very highly um, cited and, and, and well-regarded um, statistician, a medical statistician, who, who published a study showing that actually for under 65s, um, the, the overall risk of, of dying of COVID is probably equivalent to the risk of dying in your daily commute. Oh, wow. And even then, you know, it's difficult. You say, well, you know, that's fine for young people. Well, what about older people? Mm. Well, you know, if you look at the data from Spiegelhalter, it shows that the 65-year-old's infection fatality rate is 2%, mm -hmm. which, you know, one in 50 sounds a lot. Mm. But I, I, I would like you to link to some statistics on um, risk of dying in accidents in the U.S. Sure. And, and your lifetime risk of dying by overdose, a drug point in the U.S. is one in 66. I mean, wow. just let that sink in, one wow. in 66. Yeah, and, wow. you know, some of these risk analogies are a bit, so they're a bit frivolous. You know, there was some statistic I read that living in Maryland during peak COVID was equivalent to doing a base jump. Ah. Wow. Well, you know, I don't go base jumping and that's yeah. a risk some people right. choose, whereas I don't choose to get infected by other people spreading the virus around. Right. Um, I don't think it's a fair comparison. And the other thing that's not fair is, well, once you've done your base jump, your risk is zero again, assuming right. you go to the bottom in one piece. Right. <laughs> right. Um, right which is not 100%, and then it goes back to zero, and you might never base jump again, whereas COVID is not going anywhere. Right. However, right. You, you know, you can play that the other way because you say, well, you're, you know, if you're 65, your risk is 2%, but, you know, hopefully in a year's time, this, this will all be over with one way or another, mm. um, whereas your risk of dying in an opiate overdose in the U.S. is not going anywhere. Right. And right. don't think that it can't happen to people like you or me or your listeners, because it can and it does. Mm. And it affects your children and it affects their friends. Right. And it, it does raise sort of important ethical questions because you think, well, if you can throw $2 trillion at one public health crisis, exactly. Exactly. why can't you spare a few million for the other? Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that later. 
Well, I think that's a perfect bridge, actually. I think that, and I think that is the crux of the of the question when looking at this issue analytically, right? And I do want to like really clearly say we are trying to have this conversation as an exercise of looking at this strictly logically, strictly through the lens of what the data we currently have is telling us. Um, we're not, you know, and I think Ian's doing actually a fantastic job of writing the line of saying, look, this is what the data is saying. I'm not saying that you know, that that means that I don't take it seriously or I don't, et cetera. It's just, let's just be aware, right? Um, well, let me be provocative for a moment and, mm -hmm. and, and just say, you know, when I was at medical school, you know, I was, I was taught that, that health is not just the absence of disease. Mm. And I think we're in danger of becoming too data focused. Mm. Sounds an odd thing to say on your podcast. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but actually, you know, public health physicians, the physicians just as much as a nuclear medicine physician or a family physician, um, sure. you, you need to take other aspects into account. And I think we're in danger of becoming too reductionist about this. You know, mm. you need to think about people's spiritual health, their moral health, their economic health. And uh, bringing all that together is what makes medicine more of an art than a science. Mm. And some of that, I think, has been lost in the conversation. Mm. It's, it's not good enough just to live another year. You've got to live another year well. Right. But right. at the end of your life, and we've been trying to have these conversations in medicine, you know, not to be too fixated on lengthening life at all costs, mm. not to be too fixated on hospital-based medicine. Mm. You know, think of the airtime that was given to ventilators at the beginning of all of this, mm. more time legislation to requisition the car industry to produce them in vast numbers, mm. palliative care, psychiatry, right. social workers, you know, right. they're all important mm. and they haven't had as much air time. Right. And it seems that some of the good work that we've done in the last 10 or 15 years in bringing some of these more overlooked aspects of medicine to the fore, you know, some of that's been forgotten in, in all of this noise. And I'd just like people to think about that for a moment. You know, being being obviously a data proponent, I would argue to an extent that I, would, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that we have too much data. I would say that it's that we're too myopic in the data approach uh, collectively right now is that we're looking at the virus. How do we control the virus? How do we, et cetera? I think if we shifted that question to how do we survive um, as a healthy community right uh -huh. now, society, then we would be uh -huh. gathering different data around relative risk, around mental health, around, you know, the upsurge in alcoholism and substance abuse that we've seen during this pandemic, during the lockdowns. Um, you know, I think that we would be gathering different data um, and, and having a different conversation, I would say. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm a big question framer. I like I like question. I like framing no. questions correctly. So so let's so let me frame one uh, one more to get us into the meat of the topic of yeah. the lockdown. So in sort of leadership's defense, I mean, I think that this was a fast evolving situation, and and we did know that we need we were worried about the healthcare system collapsing, and uh -huh. impossible decisions having to be made. And so I think that that part was clear, but. The fact that there were no goalposts made it um, has has created a difficult situation here now for for revisiting lockdown 
discussions because it was kind of a, and not having that basis to begin with meant that it was difficult to say did we reach that and that's why we're lifting them and it also makes it difficult to say do we need it again because that mm -hmm. uh, those reference points weren't ever clear right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that makes that ne this next question even more difficult to answer but from your perspective did we whatever version of the aim was do you think that <laughs> it was accomplished or at least helped by the lockdowns i mean that's the that's the million dollar question if i mm -hmm. had an answer to that then you know you could put me in for a nobel prize <laughs> i don't have an answer for that i think there's different ways of looking at it and the different ways of looking at it tend to be colored by people's politics or their preconceived mm -hmm. ideas or their received wisdom mm -hmm. you know I, you know, I can see some huge advantages to the way that things have panned out, particularly in Europe. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. if, I look at, if I look at the world sat here in Switzerland, you know, there was, there was um, a relatively short period of what you could call a lockdown. Mm. Um, the number of cases, new cases every day fell rapidly. The hospitals, or the capacity became... Um, an issue in some space in places um, actually the hospital systems weren't overwhelmed although that did involve things like cancelling non urgent operations um, mm. delaying various procedures um, you know trying to reduce the, the medical system down to its core functions and you know once the number of cases are very low then that means you can use your public health facilities to maximum effect Mm -hmm. which means when you open up again and there's new cases, you can do proper case tracing, mm -hmm. right. which isn't possible when there's tens of thousands of cases every day. You, you know, they can't keep on top of it. But when it's just a dozen or a hundred, actually they can do proper case tracing. They can work out who you're in contact with. There's an app on my phone that I've downloaded that's available from the public health authorities here in, Ger in Switzerland mm. um, that'll tell me if someone else is positive, they log in. And then it tells me whether I was closer hmm, interesting. to them for more than 15 minutes, which means hmm. I should isolate, um, which means I can go to the shop and do that in confidence. I can think about booking a weekend away. I can travel on the train. I can go visit friends. Hmm. And, you know, a certain amount of economic normality can return. Hmm. And I think, you know, just to say, looking at a bit beyond the data, uh, that, that, so public confidence thing is actually really important, especially in economics. Mm, absolutely. You know, you're, absolutely. You're an economist and, you know, so consumer confidence is, is, a, is a big issue. Right. Um, and, you know, these are, these are some really big positives about the way things have, have panned out in countries like Switzerland or neighboring countries, Italy, mm. France, Germany, Austria. Um, you know, they've, they, it's too early to say whether things will remain under control, but certainly for the summer, at least, things um, have taken a more benign course. Right, right. So it's hard to say because there were so many factors at play. Again, this is an incredibly complex system to begin with, never mind mm -hmm. trying to introduce varying levels of lockdowns, which, you know, in Europe, at least most of the lockdown measures were the varying what we're, what we're broadly calling lockdown measures were constituted at the national level here in the U.S. They were not, right? Uh, it, it is a very, is a harder thing to kind of pinpoint the causality 
of, right? Um, but by and large, we did see in a number of geographies that constituted some social distancing measure, um, you know, we saw that the number of new cases start to fall, um, at least. And, and now, like you're saying, we have con the, the contact tracing is, is helping maintain um, that sense of safety, it sounds like, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what's difficult to say is, well, which of these many thousands of measures had the greatest effect and which had the least? Uh, right. You know, this Pareto 80-20 rule, which, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. you know, which, which um, sort of low cost, I mean, there's, there's not a huge amount of data available for mask wearing, mm. such difficult to subject one, you know, town to mask wearing and then take another at random that you assign as a non-mask wearing town and, mm. and people won't put up with it. They'll just wear masks and it's unethical to do. Um, right. Some of these debates are a little bit academic, mm. but certainly mask wearing is a certainly easy win. So low hanging fruit. Mm. Um, it, it seems that so in certain circumstances, for example, riding public transport or being in the building, in an art gallery or whatever, mm. uh, it, it, it might have some positive impact. It also doesn't cost you very much. Right, uh, right. It, it doesn't cost you very much in the United States where you can afford masks. That's very different mm -hmm. when the price of masks has increased rapidly. And if you have to change a mask every several hours and you live on a dollar a day, actually very difficult to afford right. masks for all your family. So it's worth us thinking about this in yeah. a global context. Now, it might be that um, redeploying your healthcare resources in a flexible fashion. So for example, unnecessary or delayable operations being postponed in order to create extra space in your intensive care units mm. probably had a huge effect. Mm -hmm. Because if the intensive care units become at capacity, then the infection fatality rate starts to increase because people get less attention and care. Yeah. Less attention and care in the hospital. It's just one of those things. Um, that alone could have had the biggest impact. Um, it might be that other things like, I don't know, closing a fitness center or um, not allowing people to go to a library either have little to no impact or actually might inversely have negative impact. So for example, closing a school where children spend more time at home, it makes childcare more complicated. People might then rely on older relatives. Mm. Um, and it disrupts people's schooling. Children don't get access to hot meals during the day, which sort of underprivileged children rely on. Right. I mean, you know, I think you're in a very different position in, in, in the States, sort of epidemiologically, and, and the risk of, of sending children back to school when the, when the infection isn't under control than, than in a country like Switzerland or Germany or, or Italy, where the number of new cases every day is actually very low. Mm. Um, so this is a very different conversation you're having in the States. Hmm. So I can't, I can't say that it would be safe to reopen schools right. in communities because, you, you know, you're in a very different place right now. And like I said, this, you know, even if some of these risks are theoretical or not fully understood or likely to be small, um, there's still that psychological benefit of the fact that the you know number of new cases is 
is low. I check my app every day and I haven't come into contact with anyone who's yeah, positive right. for COVID, even though I work in a hospital. Yeah, that's huge, right. Exactly. You know, and, that, and that, that, that puts a whole different spin on it. Right, in terms of your confidence, as you're mentioning, you know, that's, that's a game changer, quite literally. I, I think so, it is. I mean, I think just to, just to pick up on the benefits of keeping workers at home, because mm. this, this is one of the difficult things, because you call it a lockdown, but it isn't. You know, mm. if, when you switch a light on, the light switched on, and clean drinking water came out the taps, that's because mm. people went to work. Right, right. And I, d I don't know how many people sort of in the United States continue to go to their place of work during the lockdown. I don't know how many it was in Great Britain, but there's actually rather a lot. You know, the biggest employer in the United Kingdom is the health service. So we're a million employees. Oh, wow. Um, and then you've got the railways, um, food and distribution workers. And, you know, it's all very well and good. And I don't want to pick on a particular sort of middle class profession, but, you know, it's all very good and well, you know, a lawyer sitting at home working on Zoom. Mm. You know, they don't have a very high risk mm. profile. Now, it's very different if you are someone with a immigration background who's got multiple comorbidities, who live in a small and cramped multi-generational house, you're more likely to smoke. Um, you might not speak English very well. You might not understand the social distancing measures that are put in place. Mm. Yet, you know, because you're a janitor, you can't work from home. You know, you still got to go to work. And actually, a large number of people from more vulnerable communities didn't benefit from the lockdown. So the question is whether your measures are protecting the most vulnerable. And um, we've seen this, and particularly with the political climate that there is in the United States right now, there is a lot of very valid concern for the risk of people from marginalized communities who have had a higher um, a higher risk of death. They've died in disproportionate numbers or got sick in disproportionate numbers. They're right. also in the context of the United States, less likely to have adequate health insurance. Right. You know, and, and we need to think about whether the sort of media conversation that's happened around this has really been directed where it's needed the most. And this has been a recurring theme through medicine throughout the ages that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And, and right. unless marginal communities don't get the same amount of health care. Well, and I think it was interesting what you mentioned before we, before we hopped on here that, um, you oh, know, cool. there's actually, there's actually some documentation on, you know, a disruption of routine healthcare um, and indiscriminate lockdowns in low and middle income countries is, is potentially doing more harm than good. You, you referenced the, um, the Ebola crisis here and some of the response to that. Do you want to speak to that just a little bit again for additional context and how to be thinking about, about this? Well, I mean, this was just something I read in, in recent days that um, UNICEF, no less, um, um, and I quote, said, indiscriminate lockdown measures do not have an optimal effect on the virus. Mm. If you're asking families to stay at home in one room in a slum without food or water, that won't limit the virus transmission. Mm, right. Alternate lockdown measures have been copied between countries for lack of knowing what to do 
really with any contextualization for the local situation. You know, right. in, in, in Switzerland, you know, we can well afford this. The country's rich, there's enough money in the national bank. Mm -hmm. People are healthy. Um, you could keep some skeleton system of the school and universities working. You know, that, that doesn't work in a third world country. Um, and they saw during the disruption to normal life during the Ebola crisis that the number of children died because vaccination programs were disrupted mm. to get to the hospital. Even in the richer countries, we see similar things happen. You know, you log on to any medical journal and you'll see things like 50% reduction in cancer referrals. Mm. Seventy percent reduction in people attending emergency rooms with suspected strokes. Mm. Um, Two thirds reduction in um, interventional procedures for heart attacks. Mm. Um, and there's the danger that when the focus becomes sort of very narrowly pointed towards COVID, that you forget that actually heart disease and cancer together kill nearly a million people in the United States. And wow. there's a large number of people who live. That's per year. They, they're, that's per year. Per year. Who live healthy lives thanks to the functioning of these incredibly complex health systems. I mean, if you mm. think if you've got cancer, there must be several thousand people involved in your care. Mm. From the doctor to the referral, to the surgeon, to the pharmacist, um, to the people working in the drug company that make the medicines, mm. you know, mm. and all this needs to function smoothly. And if it doesn't, and we're talking about systems that were, were functioning at their capacity, there wasn't a lot of slack in them anyway, because we're so worried about the cost of our healthcare. Right. Um, but when something like this happens, you know, it, it, it um, causes huge disruption it's too early to say what the what the um what the long-term consequences of that disruption will be right it could be that we can catch up with some of this backlog of work over the summer when things are relatively quiet and get ourselves in a much better position for winter mm -hmm. um but these things do need to be taken into account um, particularly by people in positions of leadership well, and I think one thing that we've kind of skimmed over, actually, and I have to, I, it's beholden to me to do so as an economist, actually, is the, is, the, is the financials about it as well, right? I mean, here in the U.S., um, you know, we've had $2 trillion stimulus packages. Um, and if at the end of the day, you know, bolstering the, the public health system, um, you know, with contact tracing, with additional facilities um, and augmented, you know, care space, um, what could have could have been or can still be you know the solution then I think that we need to increase the awareness of that amongst the public um, so that there is sort of more um, more discussion about that you know and I think what we're saying here if I, if I can do my best to try to sum it up is that you know it's hard to tell whether the lock whether the lockdowns achieved their aim a because we weren't entirely sure what the exact aim was and to be fair probably was different amongst geographies and b mm -hmm. the quote-unquote lockdowns is really an umbrella term that we're using to describe a number of different 
um, initiatives that they were comprised of, some of which were including, you know, um, stay-at-home advisories or, in China's case, orders and, and enforced orders, um, you know, some of which were the, the commissioning of different industries to bolster, you know, mask or ventilator, um, con you know, uh, construction. Um, you know, some of it was um, was stimulus, was direct stimulus. So, so understanding, I think doing the analysis on like what actually had an impact on preventing the deaths, because I think at the end of the day, that's what we were trying to do was ensure that preventable deaths were actually prevented. Um, and of course that needs to be agreed. Is that, is that the aim? Um, you know, then, then doing an analysis on what, what of the initiatives were the most effective and therefore warrant the, the focus going forward um, seems like the, it would be helpful, um, but it also seems like it would be very helpful to feel like the conversation was um, was broadened and and was not didn't feel as myopic as it as it has been, and that other considerations such as the marginalized communities, um, as you know, as well as the sort of social, spiritual, and economical impacts are all taken into consideration as we learn and move forward. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, you know, the, the the conundrum now is, well, what do you do about this situation that you find yourselves in at the time that we're recording this in the United States? Exactly, right. Mm -hmm. It seems that the number of cases has now gone beyond what it was at its original peak. Yep. Uh, so you've gone one step forward and two steps back. Mm. Um, the, the number of deaths has also increased. Um which means that this is to be taken seriously because mm -hmm. the, the aim must be to reduce the number of people who die from this. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we need to know well, what worked. Likewise, in countries like Germany or Italy, where things appear under control, that might not be the case come winter. Mm. And then we need to know, do we need to go back into this? Or we essentially talk about having the world's economy in lockdown for nearly a year. Mm. It's extraordinary that we're sort of approaching the end of summer and, and borders are still closed. Mm. Travel's still impossible. Um, children still have no prospect of getting back to school in September. Um, mm. Libraries and bookshops are still closed, which I think is a, an almost cultural loss to the world. Mm. Um, you know, it, it makes it very difficult to carry out academic life you know it's it's well and good locking down the healthy population but other, other you know other things might um might have a greater impact so for example you know there's there's no real correlation between the number of cases number of deaths and sort of the however you can put a measure on this the stringency of the lockdown you can look at mobility data it doesn't seem to differ between states in the U.S. all that much, mm. even though they like to show pictures of people at the beach or at a pool. Mm. Um, you know, there's a very small portion of the population of what's a very big country, and mm. it's how an individual behaves. It's very difficult to put um, any sort of measurable, actionable data on that. Mm. Um, likewise, the the number of the overwhelming majority of the deaths that have occurred in the UK and in the US, I haven't got data for other countries, but it's similar, the, more than half of them have been people in nursing homes. Mm. These are the most elderly, the most frail, 
their bodies are so weak they can't live in home anymore they need round-the-clock care these are some of the most vulnerable people in our society yet they represent half a percent of the population mm -hmm. you might undo all the good that you do by locking down the healthy population which possibly does have some positive effect don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but you can undo all that by saying well we desperately need to create space in the hospital so we'll move patients to the nursing homes which mm. is what happened in the uk what happened in um the us it seemed to be some of the early indications from italy was one of the explanations why the case fatality rate was so high there mm. um and you know, people make difficult decisions based on incomplete data. And I don't think it's good to look back in the retrospect and criticize them because sure. likely many of us would have reached the same decision. But moving mm -hmm. forwards, you know, we need good data now about what works, what didn't work, and what were some of the mistakes that we need to avoid the next time around. And it strikes me that, you know, I haven't looked in the last week, but there's more than 3,000 um, trials on covid entered into the national institute of health trials database oh really um, yeah not, not a single one of them though is on lockdowns hmm. you know they're all focused on drugs hmm. wonder cures um you know things like this not, none of them talk about the lockdowns which actually is the most <laughs> probably the thing that's impacted most of our lives and, and seems to be the only tool that's at the government's disposal in order to control this. Oh, interesting. Lack, lacking uh, a vaccine. I mean, you talk about the long-term impacts, and I think that needs to be remembered, you know. Mm. You know, I work in nuclear medicine. You know, the, the, we do very expensive tests. Mm. You know, I think it, it really is a, it's a thing of beauty that, that mankind can split atoms so, you know, that we can split the atom, that we can create radioactive material, that we can inject that into people, that that creates antimatter and the interaction of that antimatter releases energy and we can detect and measure that energy in order to picture what's happening inside people's bodies, you know, mm. how well responding to chemotherapy, for example, you know, that oh. really is a thing of just utter beauty Wow, yeah. mankind have reached that level of sophistication <laughs> hmm. but that costs money hmm. and in order to provide these things in the long term we need good functioning economies and there's there's no dichotomy sure sure great did you have any closing thoughts in terms of one thing that's irked me the most for all of this is when politicians claim that they're following the science <laughs> and it always comes with this definite article mm. and and that bothers me the most because the, there is no the science that doesn't mean that you know every crackpot theory about 5g or masks <laughs> being more dangerous than, than causing more harm than good that, that you've got to entertain them because that, that's not true you know what it means is that science is a method and the, the rigorous application of that method is, is what put men on the moon, why people live until the age of 80 and don't die at the age of 30. Mm -hmm. And it means careful, fair and balanced appraisal, which doesn't mean simply deciding that you're against lockdowns. Mm. 
and then finding any snippet of information on the internet that seems to fit that. Absolutely. But, but means approaching a fair and balanced way and say, what can I learn from this? It's being humble. And, you know, what, did we, what can we learn? What good? What can we take from our responses that worked? What worked less well? What can we change for the next time? Right. Because we, we need to move forward in this. Because if we spend too much time worrying about what happened in April, mm. we're not spending enough time worrying about what might happen in October. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I love that point. I love that point to close on. You know, I think taking an iterative, um, learning-oriented approach of what can we learn, what can we now apply, and then looking, and then looking again. You know, in a month or two months, and saying, okay, what did we learn? What can we apply? How do we adjust and how do we look at this? Like you said, you know, beautifully, how do we look at this in a fair and balanced um, approach? So let's just hope that that's what, um, what will happen going forward. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Ian, really, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been absolutely fascinating. I hope that everyone, um, everyone enjoyed it who's listening. If you have any, if you do have any questions or follow up for Ian, please do feel free to drop them in the comments. We will pass them along happily. Um, all of the studies that he referred to and the charts um, of which there are a multitude will be linked below as well. And I, we do really encourage you to take a look at those. And up next, we'll actually be talking to another friend of mine in Switzerland, this time in Zurich, who is in the financial industry. So we'll actually be pivoting away from COVID and into a new topic, um, but looking at it still ever analytically, ever data-minded um, to continue our, our education here. So we'll look forward to introducing you to Anders Muller um, at that point in time next month in August. And in the meantime, thank you once again, Ian. Uh, we couldn't be happier. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it.